There are many aspects of this passage which seem strange to us, standing where we stand today. And yet the main point, hopefully, is clear that in this passage, God blesses his obedient servants. It's been a long time since God had made his first promises to Abram. If you remember back to chapter 12, Abram was 75 years old when he set out for the land of Canaan, not knowing where he was going, but following God as he led him along the way. This passage begins and says Abram was 99 years old. That's 24 years that Abram has been following God, waiting for God to fulfill the promise of a son and the other aspects of the covenant that God had promised to him. This section is is marked off by those two statements in verse 1. Abram was 99 years old. And in verse 24, Abram was 99 years old. In this passage, God is going to appear to Abram. And he, he introduces his appearing by saying, I am God Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the powerful God. And his admonition to Abram is, walk before me and be blameless. Uh, some people see these as two commands, but in fact, the second one flows out of the first one, that if Abram walked before God, that is what God expected of him in order for him to be considered blameless. Verse 2 is puzzling because he says, I will establish my covenant with you, or between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Which raises the question for us, is this the same covenant that God made in chapter 15, or is it a different covenant? Because in chapter 15, verse 18, it said, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. The best way to understand it would be to see that this is a further development of the promises that God made in Genesis 12, which he formalized in a covenant in chapter 15 and in terms of the land, and now he's making formal in chapter 17 in terms of descendants. We see this in terms of verse 3, Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. One of the things that was to indicate that he was going to be the father of a multitude of nations was this change of his name. Your name shall no longer be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. This raises the question, what God means by this, because at this point, Abram only has one son, Ishmael, and God is going to say later in the chapter, that's not the son through whom you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. So Abram's still waiting for God to fulfill these promises. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come forth from you. We see the fulfillment of this in the kings of Israel and in the greatest king, Christ, who is yet to come and reign. And then verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And that verse, verse 7, is important for us to notice because sometimes we call this the Abrahamic covenant and we think of it in terms of it being primarily with Abraham, right? But God was saying, not only you, but your family who descends from you, who comes after you, I will be their God. They will be my people. And so it wasn't just with Abraham, it was for all those who would come after Abraham as his descendants, 
and would follow God, and God would be their God. He repeats the promise of chapter 15. I will give to you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Again, to be God to you, I will be their God, I am your God. There is these statements of relationship that are tied to the covenant that are uh, further developments of the promises that God made to Abraham back in chapter 12. What did God then require of Abraham? The covenants that God makes in the Old Testament have signs connected with them. For the Noahic covenant, God made a formal promise, a covenant with Noah and said, I will not flood the earth again with a worldwide flood. What was the sign of that? It was the sign of the rainbow and the clouds. It was a sign for God to remember his promise. For this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the sign was not for God. The sign was for Abraham and those who were participants in the covenant. Verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And without going into excessive detail about all of that today, essentially, there are two explanations for why people would do this practice. One is for purposes of religious requirement. Jews continue to do this because they believe God requires it of them. Muslims do this because they believe that Allah expects it of them. And then there is uh, another subset of people who would carry out this practice because they believe there are some kinds of health benefits to it. The focus here is not on any kind of health benefits. It is for something that would be a reminder for Abraham of his relationship with God, the promises that God had made to him, and his need to depend on God for the fulfillment of those promises. People have come up with a variety of explanations of why God chose this particular practice as the sign of the covenant, and a brief summary of them would be, God doesn't explain why he chose this sign to be the sign of the covenant. He just said, Abraham, this is what you need to do. He reiterates the seriousness of it by saying, not just you, but every male among you who is eight days old shall carry out this practice. All of your servants shall carry out this practice. And anyone who does not carry out this practice, verse 14, shall be cut off from his people. He has no place in my covenant. He has broken my covenant. And so God was very specific and very clear and very concerned that Abraham would do what he required of him to do as a sign of the covenant. And say, well, what does some sort of physical um, cutting have to do with participating in a set of promises that God has made that are largely of more of a spiritual nature? And it, it, essentially the answer would be this. Someone who said, I'm not going to do the thing that God requires of me, but I still want all the blessings of the covenant. God was not going to accept that person's desire to receive the blessings without the obedience. And that's why the point of this passage is that God is rewarding a faithful servant. And that seems odd to say because what Abraham would have gone through at 99 years old would have been painful and would have required commitment on his part. And yet God is rewarding Abraham because he is going to fulfill the promise that he had made all those years before 
you are going to have a son, and the son's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be a son that I have promised to you who is going to be the heir of the covenant, the one with whom I will establish a relationship. And so if someone rejected those things and said, I don't care about that, I'm not going to do that, God says they have no place among my people. Is this still a sign for God's people today? The short answer would be no. Paul, in his letters to the Romans, to the Galatians, makes it abundantly clear that the primary connection point between Abraham's physical descendants and his spiritual descendants is not some aspect of them physically, but the status of their hearts, which is a point that the prophets are going to make repeatedly as we come to the end of the Old Testament. The prophets are going to make statements along the lines of circumcision of heart, cleanliness of heart, commitment to God along those lines, because the point was never primarily about do this right, do this ritual, and the act of doing the ritual makes you right before God. It was rather because you know God, because you have a relationship with God, you will obey what God requires, whether that be the covenant of circumcision, whether that be the law of Moses that would be given later, whether that would be the law of Christ that binds us as believers today. The point is not do physical acts, do specific rituals, and God will accept you. The point is, if you belong to God, you will obey what God requires. Is this right, this ritual, the same as baptism is in the New Testament? The short answer to that is also no. This was something that took place for, as you can see, verse uh, 12, children, male children, at the age of eight days old. Baptism in the New Testament is something that takes place for those who are old enough to have definitely professed faith in Christ, having heard the gospel message, they receive it, they trust in Christ, they identify with him and with his church by baptism and are added to the church. One is for those who are part of a group by birth, one is for those who are part of a group by belief, by faith. One is for people only primarily of a certain tribe, the other is for people of any tribe, tongue, and nation. And so baptism in the New Testament is not the same as circumcision in the Old Testament. Another important point to point out is that Ishmael was not the son of the covenant, and yet verse 25 says Ishmael participated in the rite of circumcision. So there were people who did this physical rite who were not genuinely part of God's people, God's chosen people. Whereas in contrast, those in the New Testament who participate in baptism should only do so if they do genuinely know God as his people. And so this is no longer for today. And why would it be that something that is emphasized so emphatically here would be no longer for today if the covenant is described as being an everlasting covenant? And the bottom line would be because the points that Paul makes in Romans and in Galatians would explain to us that, the, that God and his covenant was primarily connected with the faith of Abraham and not with this sign. 
And so this sign was a sign of obedience. But if God says, I no longer require it, and that was the conclusion of the church for the Gentiles, you don't have to do this. You have come through Christ. You are not under the requirements of this covenant or are those of the law of Moses, and so you are not required to do this. You are still required to follow God in faith in the same way that Abraham followed God in faith. And so it's not a matter of God changing his mind. It is a matter of the fact that this was a sign, not of uh, not an everlasting sign, but an everlasting covenant. And certainly that is a topic that bears further study because there is a lot of passages in the scripture that, that address all of those things. And so perhaps when we encounter those passages down the road, I can explain it a little bit more clearly. But it is, it is a complicated subject, but the short answer would be that it is not for believers today. That God has not broken his promises, even if he does not require this sign that he established with Abraham today, and that it is not the same as baptism in the church today. Not only is Abraham's name changed from Abram to Abraham, but verse 15, God says to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. She is now princess, mother of many nations. I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her, then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So the promise was not just to Abraham, but is also to his wife, now called Sarah. And so this, the response that we would expect to this is that Abraham says, Lord, I praise you for your keeping your promises with me, and I'm willing to do what you've said. Well, that's not what the text says. Look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. People argue about whether this was a sign of lack of faith, a sign of wonder and amazement, or a sign of just not really being able to understand what God had said. Consider Abraham's situation. 99 years old. His wife, 10 years younger than him, but still quite old, or nine years younger than him, but still quite old. God says, you're going to have a child. Abraham says, how can this possibly be? There are certainly examples of Abraham wavering in faith, right? When he is not honest with Pharaoh in Egypt, and his wife is almost defiled by being added to Pharaoh's harem. That was a sign of lack of faith. The fact that he went down to Egypt in the first place was probably a sign of lack of faith instead of trusting God to provide for him during the famine. There are other examples where he is wavering in faith, like when he listens to the voice of his wife and has a son by his servant, Hagar, instead of waiting for God to fulfill the promise and give him a son with his wife, Sarah. But I don't know that he is necessarily completely disbelieving God. He's just, he's overwhelmed with how in the world can this possibly be? It's been a long time. 
I've been following you faithfully. I already have a son. Maybe he can be the one to fulfill your promise. Verse 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Ishmael's 13 now. He could be Abraham's heir. God says, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. There was a parallel in chapter 16, verse 11. Behold, you're with child, you'll bear a son, you'll call his name Ishmael. And I point out the parallel between that and the announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary with regard to Christ. Very different last phrases after the announcement of what sort of person he would be and, and what God's response and relationship would be. We see somewhat of a parallel here, too, in this wording. Sarah will bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. What is God's promise? I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Abraham, I'm going to show you patience. I'm going to keep strengthening your faith. I know Ishmael's standing over there or back in your tent or nearby. And you think that he can be the one to fulfill my plan. But that's not my plan. The next verse he's going to say, but I'll still bless him because I promised to bless you and those associated with you. But Isaac, whose name means laughter. Abraham laughs in this chapter. Sarah laughs in the next chapter. Would be a constant reminder of God's power to fulfill his promises despite our inability to explain how they could come about, right? Every time they called his name, they were reminded both of their laughter that was perhaps a wavering of their faith in God and of the joy that finally having God's promise to them fulfilled brought to them. So God says, No, Ishmael's not the one. You came up with that scheme on your own, and I'm going to bless him in spite of that, but he's not the fulfillment of the promise. The son that will be born to you is going to be the one who will fulfill that promise. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Finally, after waiting for 24 years, God's promise to Abraham has a specific date for when it will be fulfilled. Not down the road, not eventually, next year at this time. You'll be holding your son, and he will be the fulfillment of the promises that I've made to you. The beginning of the fulfillment, I should say. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. God comes, he meets with his servant Abraham, he gives him a new name, he repeats the promises, he emphasizes the promises of having descendants as an aspect of the covenant. He gives them a sign of the covenant. He says, you're going to have a son. Abraham says, how is this possible? God says, not only is it possible, it's going to happen next year. Ishmael will be blessed, but he's not the one that will fulfill the promises. God goes up from Abraham. Now comes Abraham's choice. 
I've waited for 24 years. Am I going to wait till 25 years and see God's fulfillment of the promises that he has made that I will have a descendant of my own children? So Abraham obeys. Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all the servants born in his house, all who were bought with his money, every male among the men, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised. In the very same day Abraham was circumcised, and Ishmael, his son, all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Abraham says, this will be difficult, this will be painful, I will do it, I will obey God, I will trust God. So whatever wavering we see in the middle part of the chapter when he laughs at what God has said is not erased, but it is, is clearly he's following after God, he's doing what God requires, he's obeying God as we come to the end of the chapter. What does this have to do with us today? I think we looked at it previously, but turn over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 and following. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. What's the first thing we need to think about in light of Genesis 17? Do we have a relationship with the God that Abraham had a relationship with? Because that is the only way of salvation, not on the basis of anything that we do, but we are only saved by God's grace and mercy and not by any good that we do. That was the way that Abraham came to God, simply in faith, not by works. That's the way that we likewise must come to God. What's the relationship then between what we see in chapter 17 of Genesis and what we see here in Romans 4? Verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. It repeats those words many times, and the point is simply this. Abraham had a right relationship with God before and after this sign that God appointed for him. Abraham is the ancestor of faith, so to speak, both for those who follow this sign and ritual because they were of God's people of Israel and of the Gentiles who did not because the connection point was the faith that they had before God. 
Verse 13, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, the faith is made void and the promise nullified. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. We can share in the same faith as Abraham if we trust in God through Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Turn over now to the book of Galatians. And it says in the book of Galatians in chapter 3, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And so Paul is saying to the Galatians that he is concerned that there are those who have led them astray from the law, from Christ, by means of keeping the law, who has led them astray from the purity of faith? Now look over to chapter 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you that in the Lord... You will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. 
Paul is saying specifically with regard to circumcision that for the New Testament believer, it is not necessary. And if a New Testament believer does it for purposes of being right with God instead of trusting in Christ as the way to be right with God, he has no standing before God. How does this take place that something that was a definitive sign of a relationship with God in the Old Testament could become a stumbling block or an obstacle to relationship with God in the New Testament? And it comes about by misunderstanding the purpose of it. If it is something that is a sign of obedience for those who have believed, then it was doing what God designed it to do. If it is a sign of uh, trying to be right with God by having done it, then they were rejecting Christ as the only way of salvation. And obviously this is a complicated subject because of the timing of when this was carried out, but Paul's basically saying, for the Jews who think, because I did this ritual, I'm right with God, they'd miss the point. For the Jews who said, Gentiles who have to do this ritual in order to be right with God, they were leading them astray from Christ. And Paul is so emphatic in his opposition to those who would distort the purity of the gospel of grace that he says, I would that those who are preaching this, that you need to do this to be right with God as Gentiles, I wish that they would be cut off, that there would be none that would follow after them. So as those who follow God today, we look at this perhaps puzzling, distant ritual that God assigned for his people Israel, and we should not take away from this passage, in order to be rightly related to God, we need to do all of these things that Abraham and his descendants did. Instead, we should take away from this passage that what we ought to do is to believe God as Abraham believed God. That's the point that Paul makes in Romans 4. We ought to see that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, and we cannot go back under the requirements of the law. We must trust only in Christ. And so the goal for us, as for Abraham, would be to serve God faithfully, that when we stand before God, his assessment might be, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you believe in the God that Abraham believed in? Do you follow him according to the path that he has laid out for you in this present time as one who needs to trust in God through Christ? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves today. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we don't always understand all the things that you have required of your people throughout your word. This practice, the specific laws that you required of the Israelites in all their details, uh, some of them uh, serve no obvious purpose in our assessment. And yet, Lord, we can obey you, even if we don't always understand. We can follow you according to the path that you've laid out for us, even if it is something that seems strange to those around us who are not following you. We must understand 
the progression of your revelation and the unfolding of your promises from the time of Abraham until now and not seek to be bound to those requirements as he was for those who were not born of his descendants. Lord, help us to have wisdom, to look at these truths, to understand uh, the relationship between us as those who trust in you today through the church versus those who were trusting in you as physical descendants of Abraham in that day, to see the parallels, to see the differences, to walk before you in humble faith, being willing to wait for the fulfillment of your promises, whether it be 25 years like Abraham, whether it be for four generations like the Israelites in Egypt before your deliverance came, whether it be for the centuries between the promise of the one who would break the curse of sin and the coming of Christ, whether it be for the centuries since that time of the promise that that Christ will return to deliver his people. Lord, whatever the promises for your people are, wherever we stand in the history of your workings in the world, help us to have faith, to believe your promises, to serve you faithfully, and to wait for you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.